you're new or visiting, I'm really glad you're here. My name's Tyler. I lead our downtown congregation. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you happen to be joining us for the first time, this is kind of what we do. We just go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We're in Matthew 8. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 for some time, and we're now moving out of Sermon on the Mount into a different season of Jesus' ministry and life while he was here. So we're in a pretty long section today of scripture. It's about 19 verses, okay? So about verse four, your mind's gonna wanna check out. I need you to lock in, okay? And as we read it together, I'm gonna read through all these verses. I'm gonna help kind of break them up to give you some categories of what's going on in the text. So here's what Matthew 7, 28 says. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just preached his most famous sermon, and at the end, here's, what's, here's what happens. Matthew 7, 28. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, so he just finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So he finishes his sermon, everyone is in awe primarily at his authority. They'd had teachers before, but he's like nobody else. So he comes down off the mountain, and now what does he have? Crowds are following him, okay? Verse two, it says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Comes down, interacts with this man who is a leper. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. He comes down, he's immediately confronted with this man who is a leper, and he heals him in this miraculous way. That's the first healing of this section. Here's the second one. Verse five, moves from there to the next scene. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That's the second story. He heals a leper, then he goes to the centurion, heals his servant, and then to the last healing of this section. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. He walks into a home, it's Peter's home, his mother-in-law is lying there sick, he touches her hand and she's healed. And then he 
caps off his entire section by saying this. These three stories in verse 16. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what you're seeing is this section of Jesus' ministry where he comes down off the mountain and he begins to show us how unique he truly is. Like his teaching shows you he's unique in one way, but when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, in some ways we've seen that before. Now his content is completely brand new. No one had ever taught like Jesus had taught. But the way that he's doing it, you're familiar with. We have seen over the millennia, we've seen religious leaders and zealots and revolutionaries gather people together, proclaim their vision for humanity and the world, and people then be moved by it. You've seen something like that before. But then he comes down off the mountain and he begins to heal people in astonishing ways. He begins to heal people in ways that honestly, when you read it, you kind of have to go, do I really believe that? Did that really happen? It's easy in your Bible reading to go through a section like that, if you do read the Bible, to go through it and think, sure, I guess, and not take much stock in it because it's so outside of our experience and it's completely outside of our understanding. And for many of us, we really struggle, maybe we kind of intellectually understand that it happened, but we struggle to live like Jesus really has this power now. Even if you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time, it's hard sometimes to really live like he has this kind of power today. And there's all sorts of reasons why. There's intellectual reasons, historical reasons. But I think one of the biggest reasons for us is because Jesus' miracles in your life can become incredibly personal. Belief in Jesus' ability to heal is something you can bank on. It's something you can actually trust in. It's not just some theoretical claim, some knowledge that you have that doesn't really affect your life in any real way. All of us have those beliefs about larger cosmic things that really don't, don't affect our day to day. But when you live in this life and you go through as much suffering and loss as we and every human being has to go through, the claim that Jesus can heal people has this ability to inspire hope and faith in us, and it's incredible on some levels, but also, also the fact that Jesus can heal has the ability to hurt and confuse us when healing doesn't happen. For many of us in this room, our most difficult moments of faith, and maybe you're here and you're just coming back to church, I'm glad that you're here, Maybe you're here and you don't really know if you even believe because we've had those moments where you were praying for something or asking God for something that is a good thing. Something he says he wants and yet it still doesn't happen. Now last week in, in the sermon on healing, I really hope you go back and listen to that. I'd highly recommend it. There was a line in the sermon that I really want to become definitive for us as Christians, how we view healing as a church, and it's this. For the Christian, for the Christian, God always says yes to our prayers for healing. He always says yes. It's either yes now or yes later in the resurrection, but the answer is always yes. 
That's completely biblical and true. But to be honest, to be honest, hearing weight from God is still difficult when you're in the midst of suffering. Or what if the person you're praying for doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for our sins? Is the hope and promise the same? Or is it possible for God just to say no with no hope for them in their death? See, hearing weight from God for your own healing or a Christian's healing or hearing no when you're praying for someone else who doesn't believe, that's when our faith struggles the most, isn't it? Like your faith doesn't tend tend to struggle when you're having God answer all your prayers. I've yet to have the experience myself or meet anyone who's like, I really struggle to believe in Jesus because he keeps healing everybody around me, you know? The nerve of him thinking he can heal whoever he wants. Right? And you'll read the Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders during Jesus' Jesus's day, that, and they're all upset about who he's healing, and we just can't relate to that? Like, who would ever struggle to trust him if you saw him heal somebody? But that's not when you have crisis of faith. No, you have crisis of faith when you experience what Mary and Martha did last week in the text we studied, where their brother Lazarus dies, and they know Jesus could have stopped it. When you have the experience of the psalmist over and over and over again in the Psalms, who they know the promises of God, they know what he said, and what they see in the world is evil and suffering and loss happening and prayers being prayed and nothing happening. That's why the psalmist will say again and again, God, where are you? Where are you? You could stop this, but you don't. Why don't you? And one of the things we learn about Jesus from the very first healing account of the, of the leper is not only is he able, but he's willing. Matthew 8, 2 through 3 says, And behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, look, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice his logic. His question is not about Jesus' ability. It's about Jesus' willingness. If you will, if you will, I'll be clean. So if Jesus is both able and willing, then the question naturally follows, why does he ever make us wait? If he's able and willing, why would he ever make us wait on our healing? Why wait for the resurrection of the dead? Why not just heal everybody now? Why do those who don't believe in Jesus have the same hope that they'll always hear yes to their cries for healing? Let me first say this. When it comes to all these experiences of healing and when God heals and when he doesn't and when he waits and all the things that he's doing, we have to first say, we don't know why God does all that he does. We don't. And we don't know because he doesn't tell us. Now, just because he doesn't tell us all of his purposes doesn't mean he's, does not mean he's not trustworthy. It just means we're limited. It just means we're limited in our knowledge and understanding because especially if you're a younger Christian in here, I want you to be very careful that you don't ball, uh, fall into this sort of fallacy of thinking that because God knows everything and we know God, that we know everything. We don't. We don't. 
To have faith in Jesus does not mean you'll get every question you have answered in this life. It does not mean that. Faith in Jesus means God knows me and I know him and he is committed to me forever in Christ and I can trust him no matter what happens even when he hides things from us. A helpful framework that Moses gives us in Deuteronomy 29 about this topic. Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things and purposes you're not going to know here. They belong to him. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are secrets and purposes only God knows about, and we are not meant to obsess over all those things that we don't know. What we're meant to do is trust if he's given us his word, if he's given us his son, we can trust what he says and know that everything he says is enough for us to sustain, enough for us to follow him faithfully in all that he calls us to. So while we don't know everything that God's up to when he says yes, no, wait, listen, he has not been silent. He has not been silent, he has spoken through his son and he's speaking through his son. I want you to know right now God is still speaking. He's still speaking through his word, the Holy Spirit's still moving in this place and giving us eyes to see what his word says giving us faith that when we hear Jesus described, something in us begins to be enthralled at the thought of him. Why? The Holy Spirit's moving. That's what he does. He's still speaking to us. And in those three stories, those three healings we just read, what Matthew is trying to show you and show me is that when Jesus is healing these individuals, it's bigger than the healing event itself. It's important. It's vital, he's not downplaying healing at all, but he's saying healing is pointing to something about the nature of God and his kingdom. So there's two main points from the sermon today and we'll be done. Here's the first one. Who Jesus heals shows us the inclusive nature of his kingdom. Who Jesus heals shows us the inclusive nature of his kingdom. Secondly, how Jesus heals shows us his priority of restoring our relationship with God. Who he heals and how he heals is teaching us something about God and his kingdom. Because Jesus healed a lot of people during this time. He healed a lot of people. Verse 16 tells us this, 816. That evening they brought to him many, a lot of people, who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all, all who were sick. Every individual that that many and that all represents have an important and compelling story. But then why only are three stories told to us? Why only the leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, why are only they told to the church to know about? It's not that the other people were less important or less compelling or less valued. It's that these three stories are representative of who Jesus was healing. He's healing people outside of community, outside of the church. He's healing people who lack power and influence around spiritual things. He's healing people who nobody thought was close to God. He heals a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. 
And at that point in time in that society, all three of them had great obstacles and restrictions to God and his people. See, what Jesus is doing in all these healing accounts, he's crossing every boundary possible to show you, to show the world how inclusive his kingdom is. So the leper, he represents those people in those situations where you feel like it's just too far gone. Lepers in that day and age, especially in Israel, they were unclean for worship. They were unclean for community. So they were isolated, exiled. They weren't around anybody. No one could touch them. No one could talk to them because if someone talked to them or touched them, they would, would become unclean by them. So here's this person, no community, no worship. It's those parts of your life right now that you think God could never change. It's the situations you find yourself in that you think, is there really any way back? I think this will define me for the rest of my life sort of thing. That's what lepers represent. Then there's the centurion. He's a Roman. He's not Jewish. He's a military officer. And what he's representing are all the political and ethnic divides among people. Think about this. The centurion is a part of the oppressive regime over the people of God. He's talking to someone who has come and conquered the people of God. And he says this person has more faith than the people that he's conquered. He's crossing political lines. He's also a Gentile. It means his ethnic group is not part of the people of God. He's crossing that boundary to teach us, oh, you think they're far from God? That's actually where God goes first. And then third, Peter's mother-in-law. He even heals mother-in-laws, right? (laughs) I love my mother-in-law, but she doesn't go to this church. I can say whatever I want, right? (laughs) She's sick. She's one of the few people, did you know this? She's one of the few people who doesn't ask to be healed. He just walks up to her. Peter's like, please. He's like, got her. Heals her. She lives in a male dominated society and it's so much so that at that point in time women's status was so low that their testimony did not count as evidence in a court of law which is why just total side note makes it incredible that who are the first eyewitnesses of Jesus resurrection women it's incredible because what God's doing in that he's showing the esteem the kingdom of God has for women And then secondly, showing you the veracity of the testimony that it's true because why else would they make up that women were the first eyewitnesses if they weren't because in that day and age, it didn't give them any clout. It made their testimony worse. And she's in this society and she represents those people who are overlooked. When you're assumed and no one takes any special attention of you. Jesus goes to all these different people and he's showing the church, he's showing Israel, the people of God who had all the promises of God, all the words of God, and he's saying, you haven't understood God's word. You haven't understood God's heart. Jesus is systematically breaking down every single barrier, every single boundary, how? By going to those outside of those boundaries, outside of those walls, and healing them in miraculous ways. The the crowds had seen 
He has unparalleled authority. There's nobody like him. And what does he use all that authority to do? To crush people, to puff himself up, to make sure you know how strong he is? No. He uses all that authority to lift up the least powerful. All that power to lift up those who are weak. Because he's teaching you, he's teaching me that his kingdom is for every type and shape of person. That the commonality in the kingdom of God is not family background, it's not ethnic group, it's not politics, it's not your moral track record. The one commonality in his kingdom is this, a recognition of our neediness. That's the commonality and a submission to Jesus. Notice the posture of all these different people. Three very different people, a leper, a centurion, a mother-in-law, Verse two, notice their postures. Verse two, the leper. A leper came to him and knelt before him. Knelt before him saying, Lord, Matthew 8, 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. I know who you are. Verse 15, and he touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. As soon as she has all of her strength, what does she do? use it to do? Serve Jesus. All of them have this posture before Jesus that says, you're king, I'm not. You're king and you should be king, and I shouldn't be. I bow before you, I'm not worthy of you, I serve you. All of them are recognizing what the crowd saw in Jesus. Isn't it interesting that after all of his teaching, they don't say, look how loving he is, look how wise he is. They say, look how authoritative he is. Verse 28 and 29. It says, verse 29, it says, the crowds were astonished. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. When you get around Jesus for real, like not this made up version we have in his brain where he looks, a, in our brain where it looks a lot like us, when you get around him in the text, you'll experience a lot of things, but one of the things you will experience is, I don't know anyone who's authoritative as this. I don't know anyone who says the things that he says or makes the claims that he does. And again and again, the only requirement throughout the gospels that you need to actually know Jesus personally is neediness. It's neediness. I don't know if you know this, but the only thing that'll get in the way of you knowing God and the eternal life of his kingdom, listen, is your own self-sufficiency. That's what gets in the way. It's, you have, I have this strange desire that we wanna feel strong. We wanna feel put together. And so when the scriptures come at us and God comes at us and now we have to own up to our failures and not explain them away with circumstance. We have to be vulnerable about our hurts and how they affect us. We have to admit that we're weak and not as strong as we like to admit. And then we have to receive mercy. Something in us hates that. I don't know, again, where you're at in your faith and your journey with God, but I want you to know, you've gotta hear this. Your doubts, your hurts, your sins are not what get in the way of you knowing Jesus. They're not what gets in the way. It's when your doubts and your hurts and your sins 
become the justification for your own self-sufficiency. When they become the grounds that you begin to jump off of and say, well, it's because of that that God's word can never be true. It's the self-sufficiency that you have that you're okay with having Jesus be an addition to your life, but not the center of your life. That's why it's so easy for us to say, God, what I need you to do, my life is in crisis, okay? Can you come and help me with this thing really quick? And once you've helped me with the thing that I'm in crisis about, then I don't need you anymore. Why? Because I don't need you all the time the way that you say that I do. I just need a little help with this situation. It's our own self-sufficiency. It's, listen, it's not that sin that you keep falling into. That sin you committed that you still think deep down you're having to pay God back for. That's not what gets in the way. No, it's our pride that listens to our own condemning voice more than his forgiving one. It's our pride that says, no, no, if I don't forgive me, you could never forgive me. That's not humility, that's pride. Because you're saying, if I condemn me, then God's voice doesn't matter. It's not your doubts. Listen, you're not the first Christian to ever question the Bible before. Your doubts are not the first time anyone's ever doubted God. You're in a room full of people who doubt God all the time. But it's the pride that says, I'll only let my doubts be assuaged if he tells me everything. So if you'll come and prove yourself to me, then I'll finally give you my trust. That's not trust, that's pride. It's not our brokenness that gets in the way, it's your desire to be self-reliant. It's my desire to want to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and to feel like I did at least 1%, didn't I? And he keeps telling us, no, no, no. The only need that you need to admit is that you are needy. Who he's healing is telling you something about the nature of the kingdom of God. It's so inclusive. It's for every type of person. The commonality we have is recognizing, but I need God in ways no one else can fix me. But then how he heals who he heals, then how he heals shows you his priority, though, is restoring your relationship with God. His priority is restoring our relationship with God. With both the leper and the centurion, it's fascinating to me, he doesn't just heal them, he uses the healing to teach. Look at verse four. So he heals the leper, he's already clean, in verse four, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. If that's one of those things in your Bible reading, you go, I have no idea, moving on, right? Because it's very contextual to what, where they're at. Here's what Jesus is saying. If, if it was just about healing him, why give this command? He's already healed. He tells them, no, go to the priest, and who is that? The person who oversaw their local form of worship. He says, go back to your community that exiled you. Go back there, offer the gift that Moses commanded. Why? I want everyone to see that you're restored to God and restored to them. He doesn't merely want your healing to be done in isolation. It always brings you back to God and his people. It's not just about healing. It's about knowing God. And then with the centurion, 
Jesus sees his faith, and then he stops and says, everybody stop, look at this faith. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, his request, he marveled. It is amazing that Jesus Christ is here and he sees faith from the oppressive political regime of a person of a different ethnic group and he sees his faith and he marvels. And he said to those, he stops, he said to those who followed him, not to the centurion, to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Doesn't just stop there. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He says, this healing I'm about to do, it's showing you how strong faith is. He's saying you don't need anything else before God other than the trust that he is who he says he is. And you know what that means? You'll be at the dinner table of God's love. He says, if you trust him, no matter where you're at, you'll be at the dinner table of God's love with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of God's people. And then verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, those who had grown up Jewish homes and Jewish households and expected to be accepted by God, will be thrown into the outer darkness because they don't have faith. That where you're born and where you grew up is not what determines your future. He says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says you can only know God and his love through faith in his promises. Do you see what Jesus is doing with these healings? He's teaching us about faith that restores us back to God. His ability and his willingness to heal is meant to teach you something. It's meant to teach you you should trust and love God above everybody else. That's what he's teaching you. He's showing us that God cares about all these ailments that we have, but for all that he's doing, he's still prioritizing a relationship with God. Listen, he's prioritizing a relationship with God before your ultimate healing. What do I mean by that ultimate healing? I need you to recognize and understand that when Jesus heals in this life, and he still does, his healings are always temporary. They're temporary. Listen, he still heals people today and we should beg God to do it. We absolutely should, but we have to recognize that even the most miraculous interventions in this life are temporary. The leper, the centurion, servant and Peter's mother-in-law, they all suffered again after they were healed. They all got sick again. They all got new ailments. Maybe old ones came back. Suffering still awaited them. And all of them still eventually died. So why heal in this way? Why only heal in a temporary sort of way? Because the purpose of his healings is to show you he's going to undo all of that. He's showing us, I'm, I've come to undo all that sin has done to us. It's a parable for what's coming. And what's amazing about these three healings, it teaches you he cares about every ailment. From leprosy to paralysis to an everyday fever. Like he cares when cedar comes, he cares, guys. In the new heavens, new earth, there will be no more cedar. Praise God. Oh, that's the one clap I get on the cedar bit. No, I didn't want it. Um, 
He cares about every possible ailment. So you don't have to feel bad when you ask for healing of small things. He cares about all of it. But something has to happen first. He has to fix our fundamental problem. And our fundamental problem, and I know this is unnerving to a lot of us, our fundamental problem is not physical sickness, it's not emotional turmoil, and it's not social dynamics. Those are real problems, but they're not the fundamental problem because Jesus came to fix our fundamental problem, which is a broken relationship with God. See, before he makes all things new in ways that will never be undone, he has to deal with sin. Listen, the world we long for, and again, if you're here and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus and you're not sure if you believe anything that I'm saying, we have to at least agree on this. The world that we want is one full of love, equity, beauty, justice, and life. That's the world we want. But the testimony of Jesus is you can't get that world if God's not at the center. And not just at the center like this religious token of we have like a statue where we honor him and pay homage when we're around him, but then we go do our own thing. No, at the center like he's genuinely my highest treasure and reward and life and the one I love most sort of center. The testimony of the scriptures is the world we all want only happens when God is at the center of all of our hearts. And all these healings that Matthew's talking about, he ends the section with this verse by quoting Isaiah. He says, this was to fulfill, this, all this healing, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He takes this phrase from this significant section of the prophet Isaiah where God is telling Israel 800 years before Jesus, I'm gonna send you my suffering servant and he's gonna come and bear the weight of sin and shame in ways you don't have to. And the only way to undo illnesses and diseases and sorrows and griefs is to deal with our sin. That's the bedrock of it. Curing our sickness of sin is the deepest healing that we need. Curing our sickness of sin is the deepest healing that we need. Our relationship with God needed restoration before our bodies could be restored. This is why, I don't know if you ever thought about this, this is why Jesus' ministry was not leading him to a future where he traveled the world and healed every ailment imaginable. Because even if he traveled the world and healed every single person he came in contact with, it still wouldn't ultimately be the healing we wanted. Because behind every healing, death is still in the background. Behind every healing is still future suffering and loss. No, his ministry was not leading him to a traveling healing of angels. Every single gospel writer makes it very, very clear that every single piece of Jesus' ministry is not leading him to traveling around healing people. It always is leading him and ending in a cross. It's always taking him to suffering and death because it's saying the only way to get to that world is the wrath of God has to be dealt with. The power of Satan to deceive us has to be dealt with. The fear of death over us has to be dealt with. And until it's dealt with, the only healing he can give to us is temporary. I want you to hear this. This is 
Jesus' testimony to us is that the judgment for your sin and my sin and the judgment for the sins done to us. Because in this life, you're both a villain and a victim. You're always both. All of us have done things we regret and hate ourselves for. And all of us have had things done to us that we hate other people and hate ourselves for. We're always victims and villains. Sin is that heinous and awful. And it's so heinous that none of us could carry it and none of us could pay for it. Sin is so awful, and so belittling to God and degrading to humanity that Jesus, who had cured people with the speaking of his word, could not undo our sin and death with just a mere speaking of his word. Taming creation, taming our broken bodies, that was easy for him. He only had to speak and people were being healed everywhere. But paying for sin, that cost him everything. It cost him everything. No word could be spoken to undo it. He had to spill his blood. There was no amount of pronouncement of love that could cover the cost. His body had to be broken. He's fulfilling what Isaiah said when he takes on the weight of our sin and shame that brought all this evil and sickness and death. Here's the larger context of that quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and illnesses and diseases. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You don't just want a healing that fades. You have this desire for a world where it never fades. The brand new creation full of God's eternal love and life. And Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the church is to show the kingdom of God is already broken in. The whole purpose of your existence as a Christian is to be a part of this church that shows the world the kingdom of God's already here, not in full, but the way that we love and the way that we serve and the healings that happen and the things that go on in our people should say the kingdom of God is gonna be kind of like this. So we should pray for healing and ask God to do it. But listen, when he tells us wait or when the miracles fade and you get sick again, when we hear no about people we love, we have questions that go unanswered, the hope of the church is always, always, always tied to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. It's not tied to the momentary because we're told the momentary is gonna be hard. But it's the cross and resurrection where God says, I will be with you. Even when you don't know what's going on, glory is coming for you, but trials and tribulations come first. The cross is a guarantee that tribulations will come, but it always ends in glory. So the only thing we have to do together is together admit we don't have it together. It's just admit together, you're not that strong. If people only knew you more, they'd be less impressed. 
That's what your spouse and roommates think, you know? That's what your family thinks because they know you. You don't have to have it together. I'll end with this. I've been thinking about this for the last two weeks, blowing my mind, is in every relationship you're ever in, everyone, you have to at some level exercise some self-control and be strong for the other people. Right, at some level in every relationship, like you won't have any, any relationships left if you're never strong for other people and have self-control. Like if I just come home and say, sorry, Lauren, kiddos, dad had a bad day, everyone buckle up. Like I, I can't just say because I had a bad day, I don't wanna talk about Ninja Turtles again, Henry. Like I'm gonna have to do that. You don't get to just say, well, I've had a bad day so I can do whatever I want. At some level, you have to be strong for other people. And every, whether it's friends, spouse, coworkers, neighbors, you have to at some level have self-control and give them what's best for them, not just how you feel. But it is incredible that God is the only person you never have to be strong for. He's the only person you never have to come to him and say, but he needs me to be this. He needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from you. I don't have to come to him and be a leader. I don't have to come to him and say, no, no, I really do have faith when I don't really. I don't have to do any of that. I can come to him and say, I'm as messy and as broken and I don't even understand me right now. And he is not at all perplexed. He's not confounded. He's not wearied. He's like, I have the strength. That's why you come to me. That's why God can give you a freedom that no one else can give you because everyone else needs you at some level. God doesn't. He wants you. It's a very big difference. So whether you're here and you have sins you need to confess, you don't feel forgiven, be needy. Maybe you're weary and you're suffering and you've prayed for healing and it still hasn't happened. Be needy. Maybe you're here and you're bored out of your mind with church. I'm sure you want to keep doing this thing. Be needy. But don't, please don't let self-sufficiency convince you you don't need him. The rest of your life will be testifying to you you're not as, as in control or as strong or as good as you think. That's why it's hard to age and finish the Christian life well because it's hard. So start now by owning up to your neediness. Because the one you're needy with is the one who in a word can heal you and in a word one day will heal you when he says, get up out of that grave. And he's the one who his word, after he gave his life for you to show his love for you, the word that's over your life now is it is finished. That's the word over you. But he couldn't just say that. He had to show it. And he gave his life so you could trust him. So wherever you're at, I just want you to know you can trust him. You don't have to be strong. You just have to be needy. Let's pray together. Father, it is so easy, so easy to make the Christian life about attending certain things and singing certain things and praying certain things and doing certain things and being a part of certain things and yet God, all the while, never actually have the moment of vulnerability where we connect with you and say, God, I'm not as strong as I think that I am. I'm not as put together as people think that I am. They only knew the shame that motivates me 
If they only knew the fears that drive me, if they only knew that 80% of what I'm saying, I'm not sure that I believe, God, all these things that we go through, you're the one person we can lean on and trust in because you're the one person who needs nothing from us. You have authority and love and life that's like nobody else's. So God, help the Christians in this room not grow tired and dull to the fact that you gave your life for them, Jesus. God, for the Christians in this room, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would we come back to the place where we realize, I don't deserve love like this, I'm not worthy of love like this, and yet it's fully and completely and totally mine. And God, for those in this room who aren't sure that they believe or their faith feels like it is hanging on by a thread, God, even now, would you give them faith not to be strong, but to be needy, to be vulnerable again. And to be candid with you again, even though it feels like, what's it going to change? God, help them right now. Take that step and trust. Jesus, no one has the authority you do, and no one would use such authority to be so kind and gracious to us. Whatever it means, help us trust. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. We're going to do something we do periodically here is we'll take communion together. So I just want you guys to 